So hello to you, the listener, and welcome to a special episode of the Man Marking Podcast. And today we'll be speaking with Mike McCarthy. Mike is a journalist who has formerly worked for the likes of Sky News and the BBC. And back in February of this year, Mike's son Ross died from suicide. And following Ross's death, Mike and his family have been campaigning to improve the access to mental health services, as well as raising awareness about mental health and suicide, particularly for young men. We reached out to Mike after hearing what he and his family had gone through and Mike very generously agreed to come on the podcast and talk to us about Ross. I'm going to pass you over to Mike in a moment but before I do so I'd just like to pre-warn you that some parts of the conversation may be particularly upsetting but it is incredibly powerful and incredibly important to have these types of conversations so I do encourage you to to listen all the way through it and and take something away from it because I'm sure that you will. So today's episode, which is in memory of Ross McCarthy, and you're listening to Man Marking. My name's Mike McCarthy. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You've got to get into, out of the game where you've got into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Mike McCarthy. Yeah, my name's Mike McCarthy. I'm a former journalist. I currently do uh, media consultancy and and training for uh, journalists and and others. Um, I've been a journalist all my adult life, working for the BBC and for Sky News, uh, more latterly. Uh, Worked 20 years for Sky News, most of that time as bureau chief for the North of England Bureau and have been on assignments all over the world, really. I've covered wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I've covered the Washington Bureau, uh, done assignments in uh, Israel and many other places um, around the world. Um, But the most important thing to me, uh, as it is with, I guess, the majority of us is family. Uh, I'm married to Glenis. We've been married for a lot of years. <laughs> and uh, hope she doesn't come in now. I know, um, I was just thinking that, Mike. What's <laughs> that door open? Yeah, um, I'll keep an eye out for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give us a warning if it opens. Um, yeah, and um, we've got a son, Tom, and a daughter, Laura. And up until February, um, we had a, a son, Ross, who was 31 and uh, who was, you know, uh, took his own life on uh, February the 21st. Uh, Ross leaves behind his partner and fiance Charlotte and uh, his little boy Charlie who's uh, four in July. So you know they've been uh, along with my career they've been my focus in life and particularly so now uh, since sort of semi-retirement and um, over the past uh, several weeks um, yeah, we've been you know particularly close for obvious reasons yeah absolutely and you you, you obviously talked about um ross there mike probably the the most appropriate place for us to start would be for you to sort of paint a picture of of who ross was and you know what type of person he was uh, he was funny. He made us laugh. He could be hilarious. He was, you know, your typical life and soul of the party. Had many, many friends. Um, he used to love going out uh, with his with his friends. He was um, an industrial engineer and uh, much loved by the family. Uh, we've always been an extremely close family. We've always talked a lot. We've you know, holiday together, and um, uh, it's been difficult through COVID because Ross was due to get married to Charlotte last year in Cyprus, and that couldn't go ahead. 
Um, and then they tried to fix a date in April this month, and uh, there was lots of uncertainty about that when they were trying to get things booked. Um, and we met at Christmas face to face, and that was the last time that uh, his, uh, his mum and I saw, saw him uh, because of the restrictions, which we tried to stick to as, as much as possible. Um, and we spoke to him just about every day on FaceTime, uh, but it wasn't the same, obviously, as everybody knows, it's not the same as sort of meeting somebody face to face. Um, so yeah, he was a bit of a sort of force of nature, very sporty, loved football, loved tennis, loved going to the gym, loved taking Charlie uh, to swimming lessons. Uh, most of that, obviously, you know, he couldn't do uh, during the um, lockdown. So that, I think, played a part in uh, his decision to take his own life. Um, and we say, you know, he didn't die of, of COVID. Uh, he did have COVID actually, um, not many weeks before he died, uh, but there were no physical manifestations at all. Um, so COVID didn't kill him, but we think that the restrictions placed uh, an extra weight on the burden that he was already carrying, because although I've described him as I have, as being very sociable, quite outgoing in many ways, he was also uh, struggling with severe depression and had been for over 10 years. Um, so um, that was just another part of what was quite a complex uh, personality, but um, our infectious sense of humour and, um, you know, we're going to miss him more than I have words to describe, really. I, um, I, I, it was interesting, really, Mike, because when I've obviously reached out to you on, on Twitter to you know after I'd, I'd seen some of the, the the stories and what have you in the, the the videos that you'd that you'd done and it was it, it kind of it, it it touched a little bit of a you know a, you know a, a spot for me because it, uh, your 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 you and Ross are a similar um have a seem to have a same relationship to me and my dad in in from what I can gather and from what you've said about Ross he seems like a similar sort of person that I probably probably the type of person I'd have been mates with and 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 I guess it was just from having conversations with my own parents about my own mental health I remember my mom texting me not long ago saying something along the lines of you know some of the things that you say to me or some of the things that my partner has said to her speaking about me as concerned her etc and you know having that thing of if you do need me, I'm always here for you and et cetera, which I always obviously knew, know with, with my parents, I'm very close with them. But I suppose for you, Mike, in terms of, of, of Ross's mental health, he said he'd obviously been suffering with depression for about a decade or so. Do you remember when, because he would have been, what, in his early 20s when that would have sort of started? Do you remember having conversations with him at that point when it was when it was more of a new thing to him, if you see what I mean? I think it was a gradual thing and I, I honestly can't remember a specific time or certainly not a specific date. Um, when he was a teenager he was quite sensitive. I mean you know on the outside Ross was uh, fairly tough um, but he was very sensitive inside and um, as a teenager he started to worry a lot about blushing for example. Uh, it really plagued him and bothered him and played on his mind. And um, I remember talking to him about that and trying to reassure him that, you know, if anything, I think when we see people blush, it's more of an endearing quality that, than anything else. I don't think it's embarrassing or anything to be sh ashamed of. And I think Ross, I don't know, he seemed to feel a certain kind of shame that made the situation worse. Um, as he grew older, the anxiety seemed to set in and become deeper. Um, with hindsight in recent years, maybe certainly over the past year, um, he seemed to be becoming quite manic in his behaviour sometimes. Again, you know, perfectly rational in virtually every way uh, that you could think. You could sit down and have a good conversation with him, you could have a good laugh. With him you could send you know funny videos backwards and forwards and texting and talking um and he could have a heart to heart with you he wasn't the kind of person who certainly with his family who felt it difficult to um, share some of his inner feelings 
but um, yeah, over the past year, for example, I mean, he, he built a, an extension uh, to his house and he's not a builder, um, but he made a great job and he did everything himself uh, pretty much. Uh, finished it or got very close to finishing it and did a, an excellent job. Uh, but we realise now that it was probably a project to distract himself, something to consume him, to take his mind off his depression. We'll never know for sure, um, sadly, but this is what we have uh, discussed and, and thought of uh, as a family. Um, when he got to the end of a project, uh, when the goal was in sight, he seemed to lose interest. And it was unlike Ross to, for example, not finish off the little things that needed finishing off in the, uh, the extension. Then he became sort of quite, um, I suppose it's fair to say, uh, obsessed with cryptocurrency. Um, and again, that seemed to creep into um, a lot of conversations with him. And um, so, yeah, no, no specific moment or or time um it sort of grew and again looking back you know i it's only now really i appreciate just how much deeper it, it had become the depression and anxiety um that said in christmas last year the last time we saw him face to face uh he said in his words that he cracked it he paid for his own counselor and found his own counselor because he'd had problems with the um, health service in finding somebody who he could relate to and um he actually said to the counselor you know you're a miracle worker you you saved me basically and uh, it was the greatest christmas present that any of us uh, in the family could have had and i think what happened again we don't know for sure, but I think what happened is that uh, I don't know if he took his eye off the ball or, or what, but it came back, the depression came back. Um, and my theory is, and it will only ever be a theory, that the fact that it came back after he tried so hard for so many years and finally thought that he cracked it and then discovered that he, he hadn't was too much to bear. Um, so, yeah. I suspect that's probably uh, probably a feeling that uh, the the people who've been in a similar position, I, I can I can see how that can be can be disheartening, you know, for to continually build up the energy to to go through that and 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 deal with those emotions every single day, and then to feel as though you're getting maybe towards somewhere where you're not having to deal with them, even just every other day, for example, would be an improvement, and then for it to knock you back would be. You know, so detrimental to your kind of well-being and your you sort of, I suppose, sense of um, purpose, I guess, isn't it, in terms of how you're going to go about your day? Yeah, he he put so much energy into trying to get better. He was dedicated and conscientious. Uh, he wouldn't take time off work. Um, he wanted to go to work, and even in his darkest moments, uh, the week before he took his life. Uh, he was at work doing long days outside in what was terrible weather uh, that particular uh, in fact you know that, that whole spell from the new year it was very dark very cold very wet uh, he was working outside on on sites um, but he also had a capacity because I think he loved his family so much to, to hide the pain because he felt that he was um, dragging people down and he left um, quite a long farewell letter um, and in that letter he spoke to each one of us in his close family and friends as well um, he left messages for his friends and um, uh, he Charlie in particular who he adored um, he said um, I tried everything my kid I really did but in the end, I didn't have enough. Um, I love you so very much, Charlie. And knowing, you know, how much Charlie meant to him, um, we know that, you know, if, if, if little Charlie couldn't hold him back, then, then none of us could. Um, and 
he asked also in the letter, uh, his brother Tom and, and sister Laura in particular, to carry on the fight to campaign for better mental health provision. Um, and again, in his words, he said, the support just isn't there. That's how he felt. As a family, um, we have no anger. Uh, there's no question of, of blame. Uh, Ross made the decision. Um, but we would like to know, and we're you know, currently trying to sort of find out what we can. We'd like to know why he was put on a waiting list for six months for uh, behavioral therapy when effectively he was uh, a terminally ill patient exactly in the same way as if he'd had terminal cancer you wouldn't say to someone with terminal cancer um, or at least i don't think you would I, i'm not a medical expert i'm just a, a, a grieving dad uh, but you wouldn't put them on a waiting list for six months i think um, and you know, Ross has given the impetus to speak openly about suicide. I want to say the word suicide. We don't say it enough. We don't speak about it enough. We don't discuss it enough. Politicians don't engage with the subject enough uh, on a global scale. This is not just the United Kingdom on a global scale. Um, so I want in Ross's name and in his honour to be able to speak now when he can't to urge people to let's take away the stigma let's you know try and turn the corner um there are some great people including yourselves uh man marking who were doing some fantastic things to bring about a, a change in the world in society and, and the way that we talk about them and i'm so impressed with what I've been finding out about uh, these charities. Uh, but and I'm sure you know better than I do, Dan, that there's so much more to do. Yeah, I, I think what you've just said there about using the word suicide is so important, Mike, because, you know, we, we did um, we did an episode some months ago with um, Dr. Catherine Mannix, who was a, um, a, a doctor on um, cancer wards and... and, and dealing with terminally ill patients and she talks a lot about using those uncomfortable words and using that because no one's ever going to properly deal with the subject if we can't talk about it properly use the proper terms and, and look it in the face really i suppose isn't it and, and, and properly engage with it yeah i think you know as a journalist words have always been important to me but i appreciate that you know words matter language matters it's very connected to stigma and nobody, because I like us to be able to talk openly uh, about suicide, uh, I don't want in any way to be uh, prescriptive, but there is one word that really offends me and it hurts me and it's inaccurate and it's outdated, and that is uh, commit suicide, because as you know, commit uh, relates to the days when suicide was considered to be illegal in the United Kingdom that illegal status was lifted in 1961. And here we are 60 years later, still using that, that phrase in the same way that we would say commit murder, uh, commit rape. Um, my son was not perfect, but he committed no crime. And um, I just asked people, I plead with them to let's drop that phrase. Um, and, you know, beyond that, as I say, I just want people to be as open as possible. And I do think it's really important that, that politicians come on board because um, I recently posted something about uh, that, about committing suicide, the, the, the phrase to commit suicide on LinkedIn, a business platform, you know, expecting to get, I don't know, two or three responses. Um, and I'm talking to you now, it's attracted um, more than three quarters of a million views, and more than 3000 direct comments, which I'm trying to respond to gradually. It's not a little while. Um, but it proves to me that a, there's a lot of positivity out there. There's a lot of kindness. There's a lot of support, but there's also a pent up 
avalanche of people who want to open this up, to, to burst it wide open. I've been contacted by charities, by educators, by trainers, by business executives, um, people, by health service workers, people in all walks of life. I had one response from one politician. Um, and I have to say, I think that's really disappointing. And if the politicians don't come to me or come to us, I'm going to go to, to them. And, and again, in Ross's name, um, I'll, be, I'll be making sure that I, I um, chase up the uh, politicians because to lift the stigma, there's got to be public discussion and there's got to be political discourse as well, I, I believe. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. I think it's, I can care exactly about what you've said about the amount of grassroots organisations that there are that are, you know, and a lot of people, you know, and, and I count ourselves in this, but this is, you know, a hobby for us as, as well as, you know, making the podcast and, and it's a passion of ours, but there are some people, and, and, and this has probably been the best thing about starting a podcast, you know, 13, 14 months ago, is the amount of different organisations that are doing amazing work and coming up with creative ways to engage men and 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 start that conversation as you say and it's it's you just think it wouldn't it's not like it takes loads and lo it's not like something that just needs loads of money for it's not like it, it 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 needs like a culture change it needs like an attitude change and the desire is there people want it people are, are ready for it and people it but just needs it the the bot the, you know a lot of these things are bottom up but, but it needs the top to 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 join in with it and and you know kind of give it that that sort of status across across society i think people such as yourself and all these um, charities and support groups have built or and are continuing to build a fantastic foundation uh, and this is i've been discovering you know over the past few weeks is we're not alone in the uk this is happening all over the place i've been speaking to people in the states and in australia and India and elsewhere and um, in a lot of countries at least th there is this sort of familiar picture where um, that that foundation is definitely there but I think you know it's time now to look at parity with physical illness so you know if you go to a hospital you know which door you go through to for oncology you know which door you go through for urology you know which door you go through for cardiology but you know where is the presence for you know for mental health provision um it's there it's 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 certainly not all bad as far as i can make out and i'm sure that the vast majority of nhs workers working in mental health are doing a, a great job uh, and you know hats off to them for that but I think there's, uh, as I say, from a, a, a spending point of view and from the discussion point of view, and I think you're absolutely right, Dan, in terms of the debate, the public debate, it's, it's hardly going to cost a penny. Um, and so there's no excuse now. Uh, people are beginning to open up a little bit, little by little, I feel. Uh, and that's fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's great progress. Uh, but I think men in particular have got to uh, take it upon themselves and take responsibility to understand that vulnerability is not weakness and to uh, talk about our emotions and try and get closer to the way that women talk about their emotions and their own friendship and support groups that they build around themselves. Um, I think we as men have got so much to learn about that because at the moment I think we're pretty damned rubbish at um, you know phrases like man up and strong silent type what do they mean they basically mean shut up man up means shut up strong silent type means don't speak you know be strong don't talk about it um, and that's the opposite of what i think we need to be as as, as men in a, in, a, in a modern world um and nobody's going to persuade me otherwise. No, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think anybody listening would be able to disagree with anything you've just said there, Mike. And that's you just kind of hit the the you know got to the core of the of the conversation. Is is that exact thing of, you know, I think we we as men and and I can't be self amongst this that we're sort of 
moving in the right direction with it, but it's 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 going to take a long time, and people have got to be, you know, up up for the up for the fight almost. If you know what I mean, it's going to take a long time. It's it's a change in a huge, you know, you're taking hundreds of years of 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 male culture and trying to reverse it very quickly, and I think it's just. It's not going to change overnight, but it, it's got to start somewhere, hasn't it? And it's interesting what you say, Mike, about the parity between mental and, and physical health. So I went to the doctors um, when I was first starting antidepressants. I remember going to the doctors and I got referred to the local services for mental health on, on the Whittle. And then I think it was six weeks later, I got a, a telephone call and then it was like three months and you'll be you'll get CBT. And... A very similar time, I went in with a, a physical problem. And I think from the point of my first appointment, I'd had two further appointments with the GP, both times left with, with some treatments that, that didn't solve it, so I had to go back. Had an operation and came out the other side of it before I'd even got to my first appointment for the CBT, which I didn't even end up going to in the end because in the interim periods similar to Ross, I'd found a, a counsellor that had, that, had, that, had, that had been helping. And I thought, I'd, they always say, don't the counsellors don't use two different types because it can be difficult um, to do the two. And I, and I just was like, I was just, it just amazed me because I was like, the, the physical affliction is, is it, it was an, not an annoyance, it was causing me quite a lot of pain, but I was saying they wasn't going to die from it. But my mental health was in a really bad state at that time. But the one that got sorted much quicker and much easier and much more efficiently was the physical health. So it, 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 it's I've I'd seen that firsthand how they're treated so differently. Sure, you know, and that that um, strikes a, a chord with me. I, I've heard echoes of that in so many conversations that I've had just in the past few weeks. I mean, personally, um, I, I, I take. Um, uh, antidepressants every day and have done for a long time never made uh, an issue of it uh, I, I I don't feel ashamed of it I don't feel squeamish about it I think if people do it's kind of their their problem um, but again you know I went to hospital sort of fairly recently for a very minor uh, nose issue and um, there's a consultant there you know and nurses and a full team of staff and you feel protected and nestled by the NHS um, and you know with Ross's experience that that didn't seem to be the case um, things have improved you know I remember when I first became depressed at uh, the age of 14 um, you know I wouldn't have dreamt of speaking to my dad about it you know the last thing that i would have done i was i uh, was brought up in a big family most of my siblings were brothers and again you know um, it's amazing how alone you can feel in a house full of full of people when it comes to discussing things like depression and things have moved on uh, a, a lot um but you know as i say there's there's so much more to do and I think until we get anywhere near to parity with the sort of physical illnesses um, we're not going to be able to solve this pandemic you know this global crisis um, and this is something that I'm sure you Dan and, and people who listen to your podcast have come across many many times but you know that that uh, and this I was shocked by the statistic even before uh, what happened to Ross. Um, the, you know, the main killer of young men under 45 is not cancer, it's not road accidents, it's not drugs, it's themselves basically, suicide. Uh, men, young men in particular, are the biggest threat to their own lives. And I, I just think what a shameful loss of potential, what a, a a shameful loss of life, you know, 800,000 people around the world every year, uh, you know, what, what's that over, over 10 years, plus the amount of people who've attempted suicide, plus the people who are the pain of the people who are left behind, um, you know, how much do we have to take before 
there's a, a real sea change. And I just sort of, from the bottom of my heart, um, and in Ross's name, would plead with people to, to try and get on board and try and help every death from suicide, whether it's a man or a woman, whoever it is, it's a, an absolute tragedy. Um, and I think we all kind of have a responsibility maybe to do something about that. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you talk about that statistic, Mike, because that was when we were doing, when we first started doing the podcast, that that, that exact statistic. So um, I remember reading a stat about the, the people the demographic of people in this country that were most at risk of suicide, I think is men aged 45 to 49 and the average. So, so the, the, the most common demographic of a premier league football fan was men aged 40 to 49 or something like that. And, and that was why we used football as the kind of main driver behind it. Cause I just thought there's no way those two things can be coincidental that they've, you know, that they will inhabit the same space um, and they'll do so in a kind of covert way because it's not an environment that you know encourages vulnerability in in, in any way. So it, it, it's it's interesting that I mean that's that every time I hear it, even though you know obviously doing this podcast we've heard it a number of times. It it's staggering. It's hard to get your head around, isn't it? It really is difficult to, to kind of comprehend. You were talking there, Mike, about the about the pain of you know the people left behind and the and the and the and the families and and you know obviously you're a a father uh, and and there's a, a family that, that that ross had as well and, and and how was his it's it's probably a difficult question to put into words but how has his death affected you as a you know as a, as a both as a father but as a just as a person as well um i think you know as a family we're all finding that we're sort of uh, moving at a different pace so somebody might be there's no such thing at the moment as a good day it's too early, um, you know, I'm sure that'll come in time. Um, but there are better days. And sometimes one of us might have a better day and, and the other one feels that, you know, we've fallen behind a little bit. Um, we tried not to go down the route of um, what ifs, you know, what if I'd said this, what if I'd, I'd done that. But naturally, you know, as a dad, speaking personally, questions do uh, emerge without consciously wanting them to uh, you're a dad and you're supposed to fix things and I wasn't there to fix it for him um, uh, I mean I don't know my mind keeps going back to the to the day we got a call from um, Charlotte in the middle of the night and we had to drive to Ross's home in Stockton which is a, a couple of hours and um, I just felt so bad that he'd gone by the time we got there that the body had been taken away. The police had taken his, his suicide note um, and we were desperate for explanation. I mean, we knew, obviously, as I've said, about Ross's condition. Uh, but even so, you know, I don't know if that lessened the, the shock. I certainly don't think I could have felt more deeply in shock i don't think well i know that there's been nothing in my life that's come close to the uh, pain that i'm feeling at the moment um uh i loved him so much and i'm going to miss him more than words can say um i don't know it's sort of um, i'm finding that we're sort of seem to be swinging actually i don't know if anybody listening to this would would recognize this if they've been in a similar position uh swinging between a kind of um, strange tranquility almost sort of kind of serene at one minute um, and then just engulf uh, at other times uh, again you hear i've heard as a journalist when i've spoken to people who are bereaved uh, in some way them talking about you know the reminders being everywhere and I, I understand now from a personal perspective what they mean by that um, little things that you don't expect um, for example a, a couple of really good friends and neighbors took us for a, a walk through the park the other day and without thinking about it 
uh, we passed the playground where Ross used to play as a boy. <laughs> and he used to uh, just swing on the, the monkey bars and um, he was a very happy kid and uh, he used to look at us, you know, just checking that mum and dad were, you know, have you clocked us? Have you seen me on these monkey bars? Uh, and his face was just a picture of oh, just immediately we just couldn't help but crying. It's it's things like that. Um, I went to get the, the key to a shed in the garden the other day and on the key uh, there's a label um, and as a boy Ross had scratched his name on the plastic label and again it may not sound much to, to people uh, who haven't been through this maybe I don't know but uh, that hurt. Uh, when we got to his house on, you know, a few hours after he'd taken his life, um, there were a pair of shoes on the lawn and um, I, I, it didn't really register at first, but I, I went to the window again and saw them and, and couldn't work out why there should be a pair of his shoes on the lawn. And, uh, his partner, Charlotte, told me that uh, just days earlier, he made a snowman with Charlie. And Charlie wanted to know how the snowman was going to move. Uh, so uh, Ross went and got a pair of shoes and, and Charlie was happy with that. He, it made him a real snowman. And um, of course the snowman had melted and um, it was just the shoes left there. So it's lots of things like that that you know you would never perhaps think of. That it's, it's it's all the the little things that that make a person, isn't it? It's it's those real human things, isn't it? It is, yeah. I and mean, we've got lots of great memories. Um, I've got on my phone, you know, loads of fantastic videos. Um, and. You know, they'll, they'll be a comforting time. I know they will. You know, I know we'll get there. And I know that, um, you know, the, the day will come when we can look back and remember him as he should be remembered as a sort of very vital, vibrant, uh, loving, caring, generous person. You know, I still think of him as my boy, you know, a beautiful boy. And uh, part of me will always think of him like that. I think. Yeah, of course, Mike. I, I mean, just listening, just listening to you to your talk, Mike. It's obviously, you know, for for yourself and for your family, so we're still incredibly raw. And and and, you know, I, I I mean, I'm blown away by your ability to kind of articulate what must be just extraordinary emotions. And and I think you talking before about the need for people to engage better with this as a subject and engage with it in a in a real kind of way. And I think the way that you talk and the way that you express, I think the most important thing, the, the, the things that you've, you've said, Mike, are about how Ross, he was he was just a lad. He was just an, an, a normal guy with, a, with friends and a family and hobbies and things that he was into and things that he wasn't into and, and flaws and, and, and everything like the rest of us. And... And that's, I think that's as much the most important thing that anyone can say is that pe people are just people and it can happen to anybody. Yeah, <clears throat> again, I think because of the stigma, you know, the very phrase mental illness conjures up pictures for some people anyway of uh, someone who's very different, who's, you know, not normal, uh, you know. Uh, but Ross, well you know who's normal who wants to be normal not me that's for sure but um you know if you met ross uh you wouldn't think he doesn't fall into any kind of particular stereotype that that people may have and um uh, you know i'm sure we've all heard it's very often the case that the you know a, a lot of the people not all of them but a lot of the people who uh do take their own lives can be um, full of fun and, and you know be quite charismatic Ross was quite a charismatic lad as well um, but he was also sort of quite good at hiding it when he needed to I think um, he didn't like the fact that uh, he in his mind he was 
in any way a burden on his family that he was bringing his family down and on his last day um, we knew he was down um, um, his partner Charlotte had, had texted the family and said you know Ross, Ross is not good uh, we knew he was down but um, he very convincingly made us believe that in the morning as he put it everything will be off my chest we realize now that that had a different meaning perhaps um he also said that you know he told his mum look i'm okay i'll just go for a run and that'll sort everything out and it, the reason i mentioned that is because you know i've heard uh, people in some of these great charities say especially with 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 men and the problem that we have communicating on an emotional uh, level um to just say to people in future and i'll certainly try to adopt this not just are you okay uh, and then to get the sort of you know the usual response yeah i'm fine mate or yeah i'm okay mate um to follow that up with you know well how are you really or how are you on a scale of naught to ten you know if there's any indication whatsoever that that person is is, is struggling um you know we need to be able to de develop uh, language and, and and little ways of of digging beneath the surface really yeah following up with a a supplementary question maybe something a little bit maybe a little bit more specific about you know how's things at home or how's work or or you were talking to me about that thing the other day what happened with that and it's just trying to just as you say just nudge it over the edge into the net into a proper conversation rather than just the cursory how's it going because we all do it don't we i mean i yeah. i i i can't even i couldn't even count on 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 all my fingers and toes the amount of times that people have asked me on a daily basis are you okay and the answer is no i'm i'm really not okay i'm i'm having it i feel horrible at the moment but you it's not the right time to say it or this is not the right person to say it to or you know i don't want to bother them or i can't be doing with it etc and it's just normalizing it and, and i remember having a conversation with someone on one of these episodes where someone said i think the thing that you've always got to remember is either as the person asking or the person answering it's not necessary for either party to solve the problem or to solve the issue right there and then but simply by you know if you and i were work colleagues mike and, and i asked you how you're doing and you said you know what i'm having a bit of a shit one today and i'd be like yeah. why and you'd say the x one and i'd say oh well, you know just just come and give us a nudge if you if you want to go for a drink later or something and that might just be all that person needs to just just release the valve a little bit for that day and and get them through just to have just to have nudged that on to spread the, spread that feeling and i think and then that, that that other person might just pop by later on that day and just say how we doing do you know what? i'm doing a little bit better actually thanks for asking etc cetera, etc cetera. and it just starts doesn't it it's like a domino effect yeah i think also dan i mean you know one thing that i discovered is um I've spoken to work colleagues of, of Ross who say that he was quite chipper and cheerful on the Friday. Um, he took his life sort of Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, and again, it's sort of, you know, sometimes the telltale signs, if you like, may be the opposite of, of what you're expecting. Somebody who you know uh, suffers with depression or anxiety uh, who suddenly seems cheerful. It, it can be misleading so it's not easy this um, and again you know maybe Ross was different in the sense that uh, he could speak about it you know he did speak to his family he did speak to his friends um, but that said you know definitely there is huge value and potential I think in doing exactly as you said Dan just you know anybody for whatever reason whatever the signals are sometimes uh, just you know doing that that follow-up question because you know and I know that that is the sort of you know the default answer is yeah mate, I'm fine you know um, uh, and it really could make the difference uh, to someone and it could make the difference between life and death it's not the answer alone uh, obviously but it could make a difference massively and I think it's 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 being vigilant, isn't it, of the people that are around you? And you said, I remember you mentioning earlier on, Mike, about you know, with you know, it's everyone's responsibility, isn't it, to do better? And I think it's on all of us to to to, to be better. And it doesn't take an enormous amount, but it's just 
you know, being more vigilant, as you say, to changes in, in behavior and stuff. And I think that's, that's such an important thing is that, you know, people don't have to be down and glum or moody to, to be in a bad place. They can be almost the entire opposite. And it's, it's a, I mean, I remember having a really bad experience once where I'd had a really bad day at work and then I got in my car at the, I was already in a really bad mood. I got in the car at the train station and someone reversed into my car. And I was just like, you know, when you're just like, it's just one of those days. And I went to the football tram we were playing that evening and it was the playoff semi-final and they won. So we went out on the, on the piss afterwards with, with the lads. And I just, I was in a horrendous mood, but literally my mindset was just, I'm just going to get absolutely bladdered this evening and I won't have to think about it. And it ended up at about six, seven o'clock in the morning. I was just in bed, just in bits. I had to wake my girlfriend up because I was just like, I just need, I can't be on my own right now. And and, and like, I remember people had said in the evening, yeah, Reedy's in a good one tonight, isn't he? Like, do you know what I mean? Just because it's that adrenaline, isn't it? Even if it's like negative adrenaline. And I think, and that's really good advice, Mike, about, being vigilant to the changes in people's natural behaviour states. Um, kind of to sort of wrap us up, I've got a couple of questions with regards to anyone who's listening who's, you know, in a similar position to to yourself or finds themselves in a similar position to yourself. Even as, as traumatic as it is and as, as difficult as it's been, you've been able to articulate your kind of experiences about that. What would you kind of advice what kind of advice would you give to people i know it's very difficult and it's very personal to, to individuals but has there been anything that you've been able to do both on an individual basis but also on, as a family that it's that's been able to help you at this time um again it's sort of you know this will sound a bit cliche but um the things that you you hear people saying you realize you know in this situation how true they are like take it step by step one day at a time be kind to yourself all of those things actually are important you know they're not just cliches they they are important um another thing that i've realized is that you know as a journalist throughout my career i've had to speak to a lot of people who who are bereaved uh whether that be through some uh, family um, personal thing or uh, you know a vast human tragedy uh, like Hillsborough for example and um, I've always thought well you know what can I say there's nothing I can do there's nothing I can say um, to, to help these people um, but that's not true um, certainly I've found over uh, the past weeks that uh, that although nothing's obviously going to bring Ross back and nothing's ever going to take away, I think that pain will be there. It's just how you uh, learn to live with it and how you manage to carry on and, and bear it, really. Um, but it does help. It's helped me. It's heartened me. It's comforted me to know that there are people out there uh, who are ready to catch you if you feel like falling um the cards the texts you know all the messages um i may not respond to everyone but they've all helped me to feel that there's something out there worth carrying on for 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 me um i think to anybody we're all different so you know uh, um, who am I to give advice it's just my own personal experience and people are very uh, different some people want to within the family want to talk and talk about Ross others others don't but I think we have to respect each other and recognize that people are going to react in different ways and you know, uh, go at different paces, uh, as I said when, when we started off. Um, and then, you know, to anybody who's in Ross's situation uh, and maybe sort of feeling the same way, despite everything, um, I'm an optimist in the sense that I believe that, that Ross did have a life, uh, he did have a future, uh, he would have found salvation out there eventually. Um, and I think every single one of us deserves our place on this planet. And, um, you know, Churchill said that if you're going through hell, keep going. 
and that's one of those things that's easy to trot out not so easy if you're in the dark space um, but I do think that there is light for for people um, and another thing that I've realized about Ross and his life is the enormous amount of lives that he touched um, you know people who remember him from being a boy uh, teachers just people in shops that he would go into and so many many people people talk about the ripple effect and it's only now that i appreciate just exactly what that means um i think we perhaps on the whole are more loved than we ever realize and um, i wish ross could have seen uh, the love and, and support that he generated throughout his his life Mike, I think that's um, yeah, I think that's probably the perfect way for us to to conclude the conversation. And I think that's 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 about as strong a message I think as you can give to anybody who's in that position. And I think that's that's the biggest thing that people need to know, isn't it? That they are, how loved people are and how you know how fondly they are thought of. Um, Mike, thank thank you so much for for your time this evening, for your for your words, and you know I'm obviously incredibly sorry for your loss and for your family's loss and and. You know, I, I feel genuinely honoured to be sat here speaking with you because it's 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 a terrible situation for you to be in. But for the, what you've, you know, decided to do with such a negative and and the the, the the positives that you've you've tried to take moving forward and the change you're trying to make is is admirable and and, and inspiring in in so many ways, mate. So yeah, no, just just wanted to say thank you for for your time this evening. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate what you said, and I also appreciate the the work that man marking are, are doing and uh, i think it's through organizations and and uh, bodies such as yours that that we're really gonna crack this finally hopefully hopefully i'd just like to thank mike for his time and for coming on the podcast it's a, you know it was a, a privilege to have him on and and obviously as we always say these podcasts don't happen without people like mike giving up their time and, and coming on the podcast and, and talking about what are incredibly personal and upsetting and, and, and difficult conversations to have, but incredibly important as well, as I'm sure Mike would attest to. I'd just like you to point you in, in the direction of a few locations, a few signposting locations. So first of all, if you are struggling and you do need to speak to anybody at any point, you can call the Samaritans and their number is 116-123. And equally, the Calm Zone has... A telephone call line which runs from 5pm to midnight every single day and that's on 0800 58 58 58. And Mike and his family are actually raising money for the Calm Zone at the moment in memory of Ross McCarthy and we'll post some links to uh, Mike's Just Given page on the Twitter when we release this episode. And before we conclude, please remember that the purpose of man marking is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen. And sometimes listening could save a life. So thank you for listening to Man Marking, and we'll see you next time.